Okay, perhaps we should start. I'm going to start with a couple of quotations um, this evening. These are from the ancient Buddhist texts. And one of them I'm going to be particularly concentrating on. The first quotation many of you will know if you looked at all at anything, any Buddhist text, because it's the most translated Buddhist text of all, which is known as the Dhammapada. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and distress follows, as the wagon wheel follows the heels of the ox. So, everything that we see, touch, taste, smell is imprinted with our minds. This is the basic position of Buddhist psychology. This is why it's so important to attend to our minds. Now, the second quotation is really going to look at the part about, really, where it says, you know, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and distress follows. Because this is an excerpt from a sutta, uh, which is a slightly longer one. Um, and then I want to talk about these particular, which are, uh, these particular items, which are known as vipalasa, and I'll translate that in a second. Um, But let me just read you the excerpt first and, and let that settle. These are distortions of thought, distortions of perception and distortions of view. Sensing no change in the changing. Sensing pleasure in suffering. Assuming self where there is no self. Sensing the unlovely as lovely. Gone astray with wrong views, beings misperceived with distorted minds. Bound in bondage, these people are far from safety. They're beings that simply go on flowing, going again from birth to death to birth to death. Those who who recuperate their right mind, they see change in what is changing, suffering where there is suffering, non-self, is what is without self, they see the unlovely as such. By this acceptance of the right view, they overcome all distress. Now, what you've got in this particular sutta is a basic statement of the Buddha about, if you like, mental ill health. (laughs) From a Buddha's eye perspective, then all of us have mental health problems. because we're all engaged in misperceptions. And what is being pointed to here are four fundamental errors which are going on consistently for us. Four fundamental mistakes in our perceptual engagement with the world, in our cognitive engagements with the world, in our perceptual engagements with the world. There are these four distortions. Let me just read them to you again. Sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in suffering, assuming self where there is no self, and sensing the unlovely as lovely. Now, these are known generically in Pali, and the only reason I want to say it to you is because this word is interesting in the original language. In Pali, this word is vipalasa. It's actually a compound word, which is derived out of two prefixes and a verb. 
form. So if you break it up, V means to divide, to separate. Pal or pari, which is the other prefix form here, is, is actually derived from the same root as in English we have the word perimeter. You know, to circumscribe an area, to turn something in a circle. And asa, which is the verb here, means to throw down. So putting all this together, what do you get? It means to pick something up, turn it around and throw it down. <laughs> yeah. That is the basic meaning of this term, you know, to pick it up, turn it around and throw it down. And this is what we're constantly engaged in in these misperceptions, what are actually often just simply referred to as the distortions of perception. However, perception is only one dimension of what is going on here. Now, this is what I want to spend the evening just looking at, these four particular distortions of perception. Um, I might add, right at the very outset, there is no moral castigation about this. There is no sense of wagging a pejorative finger, you saying you shouldn't be engaged in these misperceptions. It's really actually just looking at the fundamental ways in which we're trying to make sense of the world. They are a description of something which does sound slightly pejorative in the original text. And if you ever look at you know, even basic books on Buddhism or the original text, you'll find this idea of the the fundamental cause of our distress ultimately is traceable back to delusion or ignorance. And what is being characterized here in terms of these four vipalasas, these four distortions, these four inversions actually, um, is actually our fundamental delusory state. This is our fundamental sense of delusion. Now, if I was going to do a quick scan of this, I would say, actually, what, in fact, one way of trying to make sense of the world is we're trying to cling to something which is unchanging within change. We're trying to get pleasure out of myriads of forms which are arising for us which are actually distressing and actually compound our distress. Um, Actually, compounding our distress patterns in life. Added to that, um, all of this gets terribly personal. We add a self into it as well. You know, so it's I who am trying to make sense, I who am trying to grasp after the unchanging and change. It is I who, for example, is trying to seek pleasure in basic forms of activity which actually create and compound uh, this word, which is usually translated as suffering, but is much, much more. I think Christina alluded to it in her first talk when she said, you know, this is the word dukkha. I'll spend a few moments actually examining that with you. So we, everything gets personal. Yeah, we know this as practitioners and teachers of MBCT and mindfulness-based applications. We know how personal thought gets. There is a, a, a refrain which runs through all of the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, the basis of what we're doing here um, during the daytime meditations, apart from the Metta Sutta, which actually, or the Metta practices, which are not to be found in the Satipatthana Sutta. What we find is this refrain, and it goes for all of the four ways of founding mindfulness, you know, to see the body as body. To see 
Vedana as Vedana, to see feeling as feeling, it's usually standard translation, to see mind as mind and to see mind objects as mind objects. That one I'll leave out for a second. All of those imply to see body as body is not to embroider it with fabrications of self, particularly. Not to start adding in something personal into what's going on, which is a pretty impersonal process. In fact, the eye has very little um, ability to control anything that's going on within this. I mean, we can mess around on the peripheries. Um, these become, I think in Christina's terms, the unarguables. This body is going to get sick and this body is going to die eventually. It's certainly going to age and I have no control over that. Every, you know, every time I look in the mirror, I see that change. Yeah. So, we cannot have any control over, over these elements, yet I think I can take control. So, this is one of the fundamental errors of perception that we're engaged in, and to sense the pleasure in suffering. Another way of looking, for those who are familiar with the, what's generally referred to as the four ennobling truths, and some of these, these are very simple, it's the, the fact of Dukkha, and the fact that there is an arising of something, or something which causes Dukkha to arise. Yeah, this is known as Samudaya in Pali. It means the origin or the arising of Dukkha. We can see our pleasure-seeking, for example, um, and our craving for things, not necessarily as the cause of Dukkha, but in a way of assuaging Dukkha our attempt to assuage it, our attempt to avoid it, to evade it. It's an aversive tendency, a way of trying to move away from, for example, the existentiality of loss, change, death, ageing, all of the things we see around us and actually cannot avoid all of these things. To sense the unlovely as the lovely. It's a very interesting, the word in Pali is suba asuba, to sense the lovely, you know, the unlovely, the asuba in the lovely, or vice versa, the lovely in the unlovely, is to see something which is actually, from this perspective, not uplifting as being uplifting. Now I'm going to unpack all of these, In fact, I think it would probably take about five evenings to unpack this. But (laughs) I have probably another, you know, at the most 50 minutes, probably less than that, if I'm going to give you a good break before we move on into this. So we have these four distortions of perception, and they're all allied to one particular task. And this is, as I said, where I want to take the pejorative sting out of it because these distortions of perception are arising simply out of our activities in the world of trying to make sense in a world. We're born into this world with very little guidance of how to make sense of it. And those who usually do try to help you make sense are equally as confused as you are. They're called parents, (laughs) usually. And they're trying to guide you around the world and tell you what is right and what is wrong. And actually, they're just as confused as you are. 
Uh, and when we look at parents, and I think this is part of the kind of teenage rebellion, they look at them and think, my word, what on earth are they doing? <laughs> you know, they don't appear to be very happy in this. And so, hence, they tend to go off on their own tack, in their own way. So we're trying to make sense of the world. This world is a very, very confusing, difficult place. The Buddha, in all of his teaching, never, ever underestimates this fact. This is not an avoidance. This is not a way of moving, in a sense, beyond the difficulties of life, other than viewing them in a different way, moving into a correct perception about the way things are. And then living, hopefully, in a way where there isn't that friction between the way things are and the way that I'm viewing them. The Buddha is saying that part, a lot of the part of this second dart that Christina was, or this second arrow that Christina was referring to in the first talk, is actually caused by the mismatch between what actually is and we want what we want to be. The way we actually would like things to be and the way they actually are. Yeah. Now, there are all kinds of psychological reasons for why we would like things to be otherwise than they are. And one is a big one, which is linked to aversion, which is called fear. Yeah. In Buddhist psychological categories, we don't get fear as a separate category. It comes under, uh, under its relation to, to aversion, because fear is about what I don't want to happen in my life. What, literally what I don't want. This is why I'm fearful. What we have in these four vipalasas, in these four distortions of perception and view and thought here, are four ways of misconstruing our experience. Of actually not standing close enough to our experience to see how it is, how it really is. Not how I'd want it to be. Not how I would fantasize it. Not how I would idealize it. You know, that we actually don't stand that close to our experience to see how it actually is. Now, the, the challenge that is part of this path, the challenge of the whole path, of you know, the path that the Buddha lays out this two and a half thousand years ago in this very ancient culture, is a path which is actually aimed at the whole process of waking up. Yeah, this is what it's aimed at. This is often is referred to as enlightenment. I don't actually like this term at all. It has no relationship whatsoever to the Pali Sanskrit terms. Yeah. What the Buddha was engaged in and what is encouraging everybody who follows this path of cultivation and meditation to be engaged in is a path of waking up overcoming the distortions of perception, overcoming how we would like things to be and actually coming into this position of realism of how they actually are. Yeah. Towards the end of his life, and I've said this so many times in this room, I feel like it's going to echo back out the walls at me at some point. <laughs> um, but towards the end of his life, and in fact, the final supposedly last recorded words of the Buddha, um, which can be translated quite elegantly, and then I'll put it into a more modern English form, translated quite elegantly, it says, it says the Buddha doesn't give this huge dispensation. He doesn't sit there with a stack of papers saying, actually, I'll tell you the way it is, lads or girls. 
Um, what he actually says when he gives his final words is absolutely everything that you encounter, all compounded phenomena, are impermanent. Now strive on diligently. Now what this actually really means is absolutely everything, everything you're going to encounter is impermanent. Everything you're going to encounter is impermanent. The strive on diligently could be now get on with it. Now get on with your life. In the clear recognition of this sheer facticity of impermanence. The unarguable facts of impermanence. However, before I get to looking at some of those elements in detail, I just want to mention these three areas that we started off the sutta with. There are distortions of perception, distortions of thought, and distortions of view. So what we have in the first is the distortions of perception. What this is actually doing, the distortion of perception, is actually causing us to misperceive the information that we're receiving. All of the information that we're receiving through all of our sense doors... We are actually misperceiving. That almost goes right back to the quote that I was saying right at the beginning before I even gave you the long sutta. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind precedes everything. Depending on the nature of how attuned or unattuned that mind is depends on whether we create contentment and peace in our lives despite all the change despite all of the vicissitudes and fluctuations of life, that that we can move into a happier, um, much more contented, equanimous state about the way things are. So this is really an echoing of that, because it's saying if, if there is this distortion of perception going on, we're picking it up, turning it around, twisting it, trying to look for the permanent within the impermanent, desperately searching for that area of permanence in a world which, you know, even on the kind of very, very atomic level, is flux, is change. Now, some things change at greater rates than others. We know that. Human and animal life is pretty fleeting in this world. Yet, when we look around this world, things are... changing and we perceive them to change. Our pets die from right from when we're young to our parents, to our grandparents, to those who are close to us and the older we get. As one of the poets I'm going to quote from you tonight says, we're in this world forever taking leave. This is the position. This is Rilke in one of his elegies. The first elegy. We live in this world forever taking leave. And we are simply, he goes on to say, and I'm just paraphrasing here, we are like bowls of steam evaporating. This is what we are. Lovely image, isn't it? We're here just like steaming, like something hot on a cold day with the steam just evaporating from us. This is our position. So we're misinterpreting everything that's coming through our sense doors. We're misinterpreting even our own thoughts. Because that is another sense door. 
we misinterpret them the moment we add in the sense of I, truth, veracity to those thought processes. The moment we start to do that, we have again picked them up, turned them around and thrown them on the floor in that misperception. We then move on to, actually I'm going to use the technical term because it doesn't directly translate, which is the misperception of thought, which is actually chitta vipalasa, the misperception of mind. This is the actual perversion or inversion of mind. And what this is referring to is our higher levels of processing. It doesn't get any better, even at the higher levels of processing. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think it would be a little bit better at the kind of meta level, but no, it isn't. Yeah. The Buddha is saying the mind tends then, at this higher level of processing, to start to elaborate upon perception. Now, I'm not going to tread on Christina's territory of what she's going to be talking about tomorrow night, <laughs> but there's a whole process of how this is occurring. You know, there's a whole process in the way this, you know, that we elaborate on perception and proliferate it, and, and actually cultivate and develop and concretize thought patterns. So when we begin to unpack what we think our personality is, what we're unpacking is a lot of fossilized thought patterns a lot of the time, which are pretty inflexible. Yeah? <laughs> Ever notice that? <laughs> You know, these thought patterns are pretty inflexible. In fact, we get very defensive if anybody ever challenges them. You know, that's the way I am. You know, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> that's me. You know, so we're kind of very defensive in position about this and position ourselves within these thought patterns and, and hold on to them. So what we've got from the distortion of perception to then the distortion of thought or to our mental patterning is, I would say, distortion with compound interest. (laughs) You know, we've doubled it at this stage. Then the third form of distortion which is going on is what's known as ditti vipalasa, the distortion of view. And here it's more like a viewpoint on the world. Now you can see how this arises Because out of our perception of the world and our thinking about it and the ways that this thinking is distorted, even at this higher level, it leads us upon viewing the world, literally our viewpoint upon the world, as itself becoming distorted. In fact, it becomes merely an, an habitual pattern. So all these three things come together, what is known as sanya vipalasa, chitta vipalasa, and ditti vipalasa. You know, in other words, let's, let's translate this for you. From perception to thought to viewpoint in the world. It takes me right back to the first quote again, right back to the place we started. Mind precedes all things. Yeah. Our mind is out there already patterning what we see. So much is the habitual patterning of what we see, that one could come to a very cynical position and say, do we actually ever experience anything? Certainly anything anew. Are all, are, is all we're doing just re-perceiving past patterns? That is all. That is the cynical viewpoint here. Yeah. 
Not quite the position the Buddha takes, but I think it's there implicitly in what is saying that we are just basically projecting patterns. So one interpretation of this big nutty problem, which I'm not going to really get into, but I just want to mention here of birth, death, rebirth, birth, death, rebirth, is actually just being born again and again and again and again into the same positioning about the way that we see the world. It's nothing necessarily about future lives and past lives. What it is about is our perceptual processes. How we can keep patterning those processes in a similar way or, and this is the possibility of this path that we're you know, engaging in in this week, this meditative path, this path of awareness, of beginning to wake up, is that we can start to break those bonds. We can start to use one translation of the word nibbana, we can start to unbind from habitual patterns. Okay? That is the, that is, if you like, the aim of this whole path, is to start to begin to unbind from patterns. And so throughout this path, rather than, you know, it's a path which we walk, which is a movement, which is a process, and nibbana isn't one thing, it's a series of skills which are developed whereby we learn to unbind, untie ourselves. You know, again, the, the image here, and it's actually the image that's used in the sutta that I read to you, bound in bondage. Yeah. We're tied to these things. Yeah. We think we're in safety, says the sutta, but actually when we're bound in this way, we're far from safety. Yeah. So these patterns which are so habitual, almost so familiar, where we think we are safe, the sutra is saying, no, we're not. We're actually far from safety at this point. We haven't even begin, begun to touch any firm ground. We go from distress pattern to distress pattern to distress pattern. And these might be minor or they might be major. And they certainly fluctuate. And they don't remain necessarily the same. But there is a tremendous repetition going on here. You know? There is a tremendous repetition which is being enacted. Now all of these, the samya, the perception, the thought and the viewpoint, all of these three work together. What they work together is to build cognitive systems. That's what I mean. They construct our world for us. You know, the world, in the Buddhist sense, isn't something which is simply out there. Whenever he refers to the word world, it always means the perceived world, the constructed world. You know, this is what we're doing. We're in the process of world constructing. Each of us does this. Each of us does this in our own particular way, through our own particular narrative structures, through our own particular ways of trying to grasp after that which is unchanging seemingly within change, trying to grasp after self and all of the other things which I'll come on to eventually. In the text, I only gave you an excerpt of this text, but in another part of this text, it says one who is under the influence of these distortions has simply lost their senses. 
It's a lovely phrase. In the Pali, actually, it says, we've lost our senses. Yeah? It goes on to refer as well to the mind being broken with these misperceptions. Um, it's thrown away. You know, these are very hard words that are being used, aren't we? We've lost our senses. The mind is broken and it's been thrown away. It's like the opportunity is being thrown away. And they think the reason for the, the seeming harshness of this is to stimulate us, to wish to bring us back to regaining our senses. And that, that meant not just in the sense of the cognitive level, but all of our sensory perceptions coming much more into some correct contact with our sensory perceptions. Now, the distortions are to be corrected um, by a number of things here. The first is by something which is known as wise attention. This is, again, an interesting word in Pali, and I'll just gloss it very quickly for you. It's something called yonaso manasakara. Manasakara is attention. Yonaso in Pali, is something which literally gets to the origin of things, to the root of them. The word yoni actually is the word in Pali and Sanskrit for for womb. It means the origin out of which things are born. So this wise attention is something which gets us to the very root, to the very heart of things, which is what we don't do normally. The mind glosses, it looks for simple solutions often, grasps after simple ways of pleasuring, uh, simple ways of aggrandizing oneself. Now, when there is clear thinking and when there is wise attention, the text goes on to say, we have gotten back. We have reclaimed our senses. We have reclaimed our true minds. So this is, I hope, not a hopeless path. This I'm outlining to you here. Because it's saying this is possible. This is very, very possible. Um, but we have to understand what the problems are before we can even begin to reclaim ourselves. Now, in a way, what I've just presented to you, and I haven't really even got into... haven't got into the nitty-gritty of what I wanted to speak about, is what I've just really outlined to you is... Um, the Buddhist psychological viewpoint on mental illness. Yeah? But not just categorise mental illness, a generalised sense of mental illness, which we all, and I don't hesitate to use the word here, that we all suffer from in some way or another. You know, to greater or lesser extents, we are all suffering. We are all in dis-ease. We are all in distress in some way or another. And this is the um, Buddhist psychological viewpoint. It's also the Buddhist psychological viewpoint on how to regain mental health, how to come back, how to recuperate oneself, how to come back from it. So the fundamental disease that's being outlined in this text is the disease of delusion. What we suffer from is the sleep of delusion. When it speaks about waking up, when this path, this particular way, begins to touch on this notion of waking up, it's waking up from this sleep of delusion. It's waking up from this sleepwalking state that we're in. 
this sleepwalking state that we're in doesn't allow us to negotiate the world. Have you noticed the way we keep running, literally running into the same old problems again and again and again? We keep hitting them. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I certainly know I used to do this a lot. You know, how on earth did I get there again? You know, how could I be making the same mistake like that? You know, and the sort of stuff that you say, where did that come from? You know, these are all, in some ways, verbal indicators. Even if you're only saying them to yourself, these are all verbal indicators of the fact that we're actually not awake. We're not awake to our possibilities, our potentialities. We are, in some ways, entrapped by these delusions of perception, these perversions, inversions, and distortions of perception. So, let's have a look at the distortions of perception. We haven't got long, but I hope you give you a little bit of a, a taste of what these distortions of perception. Sensing no change in the changing. Christina touched on this very eloquently in, her first, in the first evening. You know, it doesn't take any great brain, does it, to get round the idea that things are changing. Yeah. But actually, emotionally, we don't want to know. Yeah, unless it works for us. Yeah. When the headache goes, what a relief. Yeah, when the toothache's gone, or when your boss gives you a raise, fantastic. Yeah, this is good change. You know, however, um, when the opposite occurs, you know, when the pain gets more intense, or when you get the, you know, the, the sack from your job, or you take a pay cut, and these kind of changes occur, or you fall out of a relationship, and these sort of things are happening, this is not good news for most of us. So we might be able to intellectually grasp the idea of, the, of change, but emotionally we're still infants about this. We do not effectively incorporate it. Notice I'm deliberately using this word. I'm playing on the two senses of it. We don't incorporate it into our ways of living. In other words, living it bodily. We don't live with the idea. Um, I mean, the very famous time meditation master Arjun Chasen used to pick up a cup or a glass and say to everybody, you know, you think this glass is unbroken. I look at it and I see it's broken. Yeah. Now, that's not negativity, it's just the fact that it will change, that things will change, that we no need to grasp after it. Yeah. If we even took that as a simple fact, you know, I'm not even talking about the, the, pain, the real pains of the loss of a loved one or anything like this, or even the loss of a beloved pet for many people. I've seen so many people in tremendous distress of the loss of a, of a pet, sometimes more even than with a human being. But I'm not even talking about that, but I'm just talking about the mundane elements of life where we, for example, we lose something or break something and, of course, we get upset. We even get angry when we've lost something. The ghost story writer M.R. James, some of you might know him, he was the provost of King's College in Cambridge, uh, for quite a while, he wrote a wonderful little short story called The Malice of Inanimate Objects. <laughs> Think about, you know, when, when the car doesn't work, it's a heap of junk. 
that doesn't work. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an inanimate object with a great deal of malice. I tend to think of Basil Forty at this time, you know, whipping the car. <laughs> yeah. But we look, we are bound to search for that which is unchanging. Now, even if we begin to perceive it at what I call a macro level, at a high level, um, we often grasping after it in subtle things, like for emotionally, we look for, say, our partner to be an unchanging phenomenon, yeah. for something to be constant, steady within that. You know? I mean, the worst thing you can ever have is a partner who changes on you. Yeah. What do you do? You know, I, th- you know, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. <laughs> You know, the, hence the kind of uh, seeds for lots of arguments, you know, which are often about change. Now, I'm, I'm joking about this, but this is very serious because actually it's the inability to negotiate the change. It's that inability to live with and negotiate change rather than argue with it that causes distress. Yeah. The moment we begin to argue, we're going to be escalating distress. In a passage I'm sure Christina's going to cite to you tomorrow night is the outcome of this process that she talked about um, very briefly and said that she would outline again tomorrow night. This process gives rise ultimately to all disputes. It's an argument ultimately with change. It's an argument with the flux of existence, with the evanescence of existence. It's rising and falling. You know, the picture the Buddha gives us of Liz is of living a fluidity rather than something static. Now, I just want to read just a tiny extract from Wilker here. This comes out of the Sonnets to Orpheus. Um, here, this is the sonnet number 12 for those who know these sonnets. Desire is to be, you know, desire to be changed, he says. Every creative mind that masters the earthly state loves most in the verve of the figure of the brilliant point of the turn. Whatever is set upon staying has died at the very start. It's written right into the contract of life, a change. But I love this line, you know, what you know, the, those who master earth, the earthly the earthly state loves most in the verve the figure of the brilliant point of turn of movement, you know, like a ballet dancer moving. Yeah, we seek often in our own existences to solidify ourselves and turn us into ourselves into a something something which is unchanging. We attempt to fossilise ourselves in our existence. You know, we take on character, character, trait, character traits which are difficult to throw off. You know, however, there can be a, a world of change still going on, a world of fermenting underneath that. And that almost comes into the third of the Vipalasas, assuming a self where there is no self, where there is no, not no self, but no fixed self, 
nothing which is unchanging within us. The visions, the, the alternative that's being offered here is to, rather than being something which we consider ourselves, where we consider ourselves to be something of a thing in this world, with definite traits, opinions, um, fossilizations, concretizations in our being about who and what we are. The image that's being offered here, which is actually linked to this first one of change, is of a dynamic process of self. Of becoming who you are is to become no thing. To become your possibilities. Your possibilities of being. Your your possibilities of being in this life in different ways. And that's obviously at the very heart of this message, this walking of the way that the Buddha is speaking about, because if there was no possibility of change, there would be no point to this process. If we weren't changing and couldn't, in a sense, move the change in a direction that was positive, yet we cling so tenaciously often to who we think we are. We narrativize ourselves. We capture ourselves. We could even capture ourselves within a list of, you know, what I am good at, what am I am bad at, what I like, what I don't like. You know, I could give you a big list of things. And even if we listed out all those things, it would tell you nothing about you. Yeah. It might tell you, at the most, a snapshot at that moment of time. That is all. And there's a, there's a huge pathos to this in the sense of trying to turn ourselves into something static out of the dynamic possibilities that we have. You know, assuming ourselves to be a self. To be a self is the closure often of possibility in the sense of fixity. I close my possibilities down by assuming this fixed position. And again, we often, as we get older in life, move into that position as, I couldn't possibly do that. It's a closure. It's a contraction. The self is actually a spasm. (laughs) You know, it's almost like a muscular spasm. It takes an awful lot to relax it. I contract around my eye. (laughs) You know, and my eye is a little sort of like pole-like thing in English, isn't it? I. The first-person pronoun. And we contract around that. Uh, And yet we can look for this I. We can look for where it is. And this part of the processes that often we engage in, in this meditative path, is looking for this I. This is no great, you know, sort of vast discovery. In fact, you know, contemporary scientists and philosophers of science are also coming to the same idea, that there is no fixed eye. Let me give you a little quote here from Daniel Dennett, the philosopher of science, um, looking for the self. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron... And then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor impulse, scratching your head and wondering where yourself is. (laughs) You know, 
Or to quote Wittgenstein, you know, uh, I have the belief that the self is merely a grammatical error. (laughs) I hope you're getting the impression through this that, 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 that when we start to look for this self, it becomes increasingly more difficult to find. And we're not saying, and because the Buddha isn't saying this either at all, he's not saying that there is no self. What he's saying is there is not a fixed self. Yeah? There is nothing fixed within our experience. When I first began to understand this, I can only reflect here from my own personal experience here, when I first began to understand this and realised that there is no fixed self, it was a tremendously liberating expression for me of the idea that this opened up all kinds of possibilities. I might be in this state at this moment in time, but it is not a fixed state. So no matter, and I think this is particularly important for... You know, clients are sometimes here that you know that that the state that they're in, the state of often mental distress, is one that can change. It will change, and it probably is changing. You know, even at that, you know, even at this moment, it is changing. It does not remain fixed. It does not remain constant. It is a process of change that's going on here. Well, we come to seeking pleasure in suffering. Um, well, this is one of our big habit patterns. To seek for the pleasurable in that which is actually unpleasurable. When we think of the destructive behaviours that human beings, in a generalised sense, engage in, in order to seek the overcoming of pain. And what do they do is they cause themselves more pain in the seeking to overcome pain. This is you know, something which um, actually takes quite a long time to sink in, doesn't it? You know, that we're actually doing... <laughs> it really does. I mean, it takes a long time to sink in. But actually, there isn't any pleasure in this. But actually, the ones usually say, perhaps there isn't any pleasure, but I'll give it one more go. <laughs> just to see if there really isn't any pleasure in this. Um, it's almost like kind of, out of sheer disbelief we keep on doing it. The same stuff again and again and again. We keep on doing it. And this is the seeking for pleasure and what is unpleasurable. And when we think of all of these destructive habit patterns, and I haven't got time to kind of go into detail this evening, all of these destructive patterns and habits both mental and physical, that we often engage in. You know, the constant, constantly trying to distract ourselves, trying to amuse ourselves. Now, I don't want to add anything pejorative into this because, as I said right at the beginning, this is our way of trying to overcome pain and distress and make sense of our world. It's just that we're very ill-equipped often to do it. We we actually turn away from things which will ultimately perhaps give us the peace, the contentment and the equanimity that we desire and turn towards the very things which actually won't give you that. You know, it's, this is why sometimes, I don't actually like this word, <clears throat> it's often why these are not, some, not just called distortions, they're sometimes called perversions of perception, because almost perversely 
we continue to do this. There is a perversity, and there's a huge perversity to human behaviour, isn't there? To what we do and the way that we keep on doing things again and again and again and again. As I say, almost out of sheer disbelief that it doesn't work. We get involved in the same problems. We get involved in, in destructive relationships. We get involved in habit patterns, all of which are seeking to quell the distress. Now, the, the term dukkha, which is this word that's usually translated as suffering, um, sometimes as distress, by one slightly idiosyncratic translator, as stress, um, but actually means a fundamental sense of dissatisfaction, a some fundamental sense of never, ever quite getting what you want from life. It's almost as if there is a constant sense of lack in our lives. A hole that can't be filled. And what a lot of these destructive behaviours are are, is an attempt to fill up the vacuum. To fill up the hole. The the hole actually in the sense of being in this world. That's what often is confronting us in our search for meaning, in our search for making sense, is this vacuity right at the heart of it. Vacuity, actually, which is allied to the search for meaning, allied to the search for trying to find something which does make sense for us here. Why are we here? You know, almost the big existential questions. Uh, but we seek to do this through the means we have available. The means, actually, that have been conditioned often to us by our societies, by our parental upbringing. All we end up doing, ultimately, that we know, is often just being as miserable as everybody else. And I'm not meaning that in any kind of facetious sense, that we end up being in the same position because, in a sense, we are reflective of the patterns within our society, which proffer and offer something, for obvious reasons, which can never bring us the sort of satisfaction that we're looking for. So we end up with, if you like, the the texture of our experience being primarily one of dissatisfaction. Even when you get the most desired object, the thing that you perhaps strive so hard to get, or the relationship you work really hard to forge, there can often still be that sense of niggling dissatisfaction, a sense of hollowness, a sense of not quite rightness about it. You know, it's like even just the, you know, the, the, the very object you want, I get it and it's not quite the right colour. <laughs> yeah. Not quite the right colour. And so we, we're, in a sense, then on a path of craving, a path of searching for something which will be our terminal point where I can say, I've got it, the thing that really satisfies me. Now, notice what I've, the way I've set this up, is I've set it up in the search for our contentment, our peace, in terms of externalities. Yeah. We're looking for something or someone to fill up that hollow in our sense of being, to bring us to that state where I feel satisfied content in life 
no longer having to strive for something to bring about that. And that was deliberate to actually bring across the point that we look towards the external for this. We look towards another person or we look to the goods of the world to provide this for us. And the one thing, actually, if we reflect on it and begin to look at it in terms of even our own lives, is we see that it doesn't necessarily bring that. You know, it's, it's, not certainly, it's certainly not guaranteed, and I don't personally think it's ever guaranteed, that things will give you any degree of happiness. What they will give you, or contentment, what they will give you is pleasure. And pleasure is fine. There is no problem with pleasure, as long as you realise it's impermanent. But what we seek to do is like the addict, we seek to maintain that state of pleasure. So as the addict has got to have the substance or whatever it is for their addiction, we have to have things to stoke up those feelings of pleasure, to keep us going. You know, for a certain while until the craving arises again. You know, so actually the model in Buddhist psychology is often being used is an addictive model. For ordinary human distress, not for what I would call the kind of medicalised addictions um, that we obviously see lots of distress around. And like most addicts, we're probably fairly expert at knowing actually this doesn't provide us with what we're looking for but we still keep going, still keep doing it, still keep looking for it. And if we talk about it in the realm of the human and we look for satisfaction from another person, you know, for them to provide us with happiness, well, personally, I think it's the death knell of relationship. You know, when you go to another, make me happy. You know, it's really kind of closure on it, isn't it? You know, it's a demand, it's an actually unsustainable demand that somebody make you happy in this. So we seek, you know, we seek pleasure actually in what is distressing situations. We seek pleasure in that which is ultimately unsatisfactory for us. The Buddha gives you, and I'll almost finish off on this, the Buddha gives us a very interesting image at one stage in one of the texts. He gives an image of a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop who's thrown a bone which has, is smeared with blood, it is said, but has no meat on it whatsoever. And the dog chews and chews and chews the bone trying to find nutrition out of it, trying to find something some, you know, that will give it some sense of nutrition. And in a way, that's the metaphor for what we're doing. We chew over the same stuff again and again and again, trying to extract something out of it which it can never actually give us. So this is the kind of model that's being used in sensing, you know, sensing pleasure in what is actually suffering, something which is actually unsatisfactory. Sensing the unlovely in... You know, you know, sensing the unlovely is lovely. The, the asuba asuba. The, the unbeautiful as the beautiful. And I can think of many, many examples of that in life. And one, I'll, kind of the image I'll leave you with really, is often the way that we're addicted to looking at violence. You know? And this gets more and more grotesque every time I go to the cinema. 
and I see this choreographed violence, it seems to me this is a very, very good example of trying to find the beautiful in what is actually unbeautiful. And what we look at is the wonder of the technological effects and the CGI and all the rest of it in something which is actually quite grotesque. Violence is grotesque, whether it's simulated or whether it is real. There is nothing lovely in it whatsoever. And yet we will seek that and we will seek pleasure in that. And we will seek pleasure in many, many ways which are not dissimilar to that of trying to find it in that which is actually unlovely in our lives. So these distortions of perception, we're picking up actually all of these, turning them around and throwing them down and perceiving this as the real. And this is what is guiding our way through life. Now the Buddha is giving us a path in the Satipatthanas, for example, of actually beginning to actually work on these distortions of perception by creating wise attention, wise thinking around these, all of these four elements. I think I'll rest my case <laughs> for this evening. <laughs> okay, thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.